God, first I think of all the victims and the families that have been uh, just devastated over the last 24 hours because of these two senseless shootings and two acts of violence, God. I pray that You would bring great comfort to those families, to those communities. That You would use these shootings to draw people to Yourself. And I don't know how it's possible, God, but I know the promise from Your Word is true. All things work together for Your glory. So I pray that would be true this morning. God, I also pray for all of our students, all of our teachers, all the faculty, all the bus drivers as they get ready to go back to school. God, I pray for the teachers that they would see this as their mission field. Not just a classroom, but a mission field full of hearts that are eager to know You. That You would use these teachers and this faculty to draw students to Yourself. I pray for each student, God. That You'd keep them safe. That they go to school, You'd open their minds and their hearts uh, to education, to learning. But somehow, some way, God, You'd open their hearts and minds to the Gospel. That the Gospel would be proclaimed in any way possible. And that You would draw men and women and boys and girls to Yourself. And now, God, we come to Your Holy Word. We know that this has the power to awaken us from death to life. We also know it has the power to transform us. It has the power to sanctify us, to become more like Christ Jesus. I pray that would be true for all of us in this room. Whether we're far from You, the hearing and the teaching of Your Word would be spoken, that You would cause regeneration to happen. I pray for those of us know You, have walked with You, that You would continue to do a sanctifying work in our lives. We humbly submit ourselves to You this morning. Be glorified in this place as we wait for You. I pray this in the mighty name of Christ Jesus. Amen. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to the Pew Bibles to page 911. This is a very familiar passage to all of us. I'm sure all of us have heard uh, this, the very first verse for sure. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, the fellowship, the breaking of bread, and the prayers. What I want to do this morning is teach that passage in its entirety. And I want to look at four things. And what I want to look at this morning is what does a true church look like? What does Christian community look like? I believe there's four pillars that will hold up everything to a true church. And in light of that, I want to ask you to ask us as a church, is this true about Powell's Chapel? We're going to take a grade and we were to grade the church this morning as a whole. How would we do with these four things that we see in this text? And so I want to look at these four things. The four things are this. Every Christian church must be a learning community. It must be a loving community. It must be a worshiping community. And lastly, it must be a reaching community. I want to look at that in light of this text this morning. So let's read uh, the verse again. And this is what it says. And this is the context of what is being written by uh, the, the, the man that wrote the book of Luke. He's writing right after Pentecost. Pentecost is where uh, Christ had come and 15 days after um, the Passover Jewish people came to celebrate that. And so, 
there's a celebration happening here. Now what happens is that Peter and the other eleven apostles or disciples stand up, and in my opinion, outside of the Sermon on the Mount, probably the most powerful sermon to ever be preached in the world. And we see the fruit of Peter's preaching. Up until this point in the world, there was only 120 disciples. If you think about that for a moment, Jesus had walked the earth for 30 years, He had done 33 years, He had done ministry for 33 years, and there's about 120 disciples at this moment. This is right after the moment the Lord had been risen from the dead, and then He walks on the earth, He's telling Him what they're going to do, and now He has already ascended. We see that in Acts chapter 1. And then Peter and the apostles come together, and they've been promised the Holy Spirit. At the beginning of chapter 2, the Holy Spirit falls on these 120 Christians, believers. And then by the work of God, uh, the men and women from all over the world come and uh, they have the gift of tongues. And that, that's not what we see on TV. That literally means they could speak other languages that they did not know before. And so the, the Holy Spirit has ascended on to the apostles and to the disciples all 120, and they begin to preach the Gospel message. Peter gets up and preaches about Jesus. Then it says the church began. We're at the start of the church. The collection of God's people, the redeemed, into a congregation of the people before they're sent back out all over the world. And this is what it tells us. After the preaching of the Apostle Peter it says this, the first thing that every church must be is a learning community. It says this, they've devoted themselves to the Apostle's teaching. That word devoted means they were tethered to or they were hinged to or they were attached to. They could not be separated from it. So they were first and foremost attached to the Apostle's teaching. To what God was speaking through them about His Word. Now here's what we know to be true. The Bible at that point had not been assembled. The, most of the New Testament had not even been written yet. So what was the apostles teaching? What were they devoting themselves to? I think if you have an opportunity this afternoon, read uh, Acts chapter 2. The preaching that Peter did. Two things that we see in that text. Two things. That they were preaching, this must always be preached. That Jesus Christ is the Christ. Like if you go to a church and that church is not preaching about Christ being Christ, run as far away from that church as possible. Because I would say to this, to you, that's not, that's not a church. If they're not talking about Jesus being the Christ, it's just a gathering of people having a good time. So first, we must be dedicated, we must be devoted to, as a church, that Christ is the risen Savior of the world. That's the cornerstone of everything that we believe to be true, of who Jesus is. But here's the other thing that must be true about every church, as we are a learning community. We must claim that Christ, Jesus, is also Lord of our lives. 
He cannot just be the risen Savior. He must have dominion over your life. So if you go to a church and they're not preaching that Christ is Lord of all, run for the hills. That they're, they're saying there's other things outside of Christ that can rule and reign. And so we must be tethered like the apostles, like the disciples, like the early church, that we must say that, yes, Christ is who He says He is, and He's Lord of all. But it doesn't just say that. It says that they were devoted to the apostles' teaching. They were devoted to the Word of God. They were devoted to the Old Testament. Again, if you go to a church and all they preach is the New Testament, run for the hills. If you go to a church and all they preach is the red letters of the Bible, run for the hills. We must tether ourselves to the whole counsel of God. We cannot pick and choose what we believe to be true about God's Word. I like some of that. I don't like some of that. This is not a buffet line. I mean, you know, you ever been to a buffet? Go, go, leave here, go to the farmer's uh, buffet in town. Like, there's a lot of stuff I leave on that buffet line. But what God is saying, what the apostles are telling us, what Peter says, no, we must take all of God's counsel for all of God's counsel. Even the book of Numbers. What? Like, many people get to like Genesis, man, I'm tracking through that. Leviticus tracking through that. Then we start falling off when we get to Numbers, Leviticus, Deuteronomy. It's just a bunch of numbers and names. Keep plowing through and reading it. It's in there for a reason. I don't always know the reason, but I know God in His wisdom put those the Pentateuch together for a reason. And so do we take the whole counsel of God? If the church is not preaching the whole... Council of God, I would say it's not a church. It's a country club. A gathering of people. You, you might as well go play golf. You have a better time. I guess much better time if you're not hearing about the Word of God. Go play around the golf. But man, we must devour this. Let's turn just for a moment to Second Timothy. Chapter 3. As I was thinking about this morning, I was thinking about yesterday in El Paso, this morning in Ohio, about these mass shootings. God brought me to this passage of Scripture. Now we know this passage of Scripture at the end very well. This is page 996 in the Pew Bible. We know this passage well. All Scripture is breathed out by God, profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped in every good work. You see, that's what the apostles were devoted to. My great fear comes before that teaching. See, in context that God's Word is breathed out by God and it's useful for these things, this is what... uh, Paul is writing to young Timothy. Tell me if this doesn't sound familiar to where we're at in this very moment. This is the start of chapter 3. But understand this, that in the last days, there will come times of difficulty. 
For people will be lovers of self. Lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having an appearance of godliness, but denying its power altogether. Avoid such people. Is that not where we're at today in America? If not the world? Like when I was thinking about yesterday and what happened in El Paso this morning, I thought, man, that is where we're at. But how did we get to where we're at? Follow with me in the text. He tells us in this how they got to where they're at. He says this in verse 12. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. I think the moment persecution happens, we wander away from the truth of God. Like when persecution happens, we ought to hold on to the Word of God, but so many people, when persecution happens, they wander from the truth of God. They're, they no longer become a learning community. They, they want to justify their circumstances rather than dive deep into the Word of God. He goes on to say it this in verse 13, while evil people and impostors will go from what? Bad to worse. Deceiving and being deceived. But as for you, catch what it says. But as for you, which means these others did not do this. But as for you, continue in what you have learned. Continue in what you have learned and have firmly believe knowing from what you have learned it. And how from childhood you have been acquainted with what? The sacred writings. That's the Word of God. He's saying, unlike these that wandered away from the sacred writings, you the believer hold fast to the sacred writings of God's Word. Hold fast to it. And he says, this is the reason we hold fast to God's Word. Which is able to make you wise for what? Salvation. That word salvation is not justification. That word salvation is your sanctification. The ongoing process of becoming more and more and more like Christ. If you want to be like Christ, you must know Christ's Word. If you want to live a godly life, you must know the God of this Bible. Not the God of the internet. Not the God of the TV. Not the God of Joel Olstein, Not the God of any other pastor. Not the God of Todd. The God of the Bible. Paul says it this way. Be a Berean. You must know God's Word. Are we, church, a Bible-believing community? And not only that, not just do we believe the Bible, but are we a Bible-living community? Do we live out what God's Word says? There's a lot of people that believe in the Bible, but they don't live what the Bible teaches. That's what he tells us in James. Great, even the demons believe. But are we a learning community that is centered around God's holy Word? You see, that's the first thing. Out of all the things 
that the writer could have said about those young disciples, those young followers, it says that they were first what? Devoted to what? The apostles' teaching. Turn with me to Hosea chapter 4, verse 6. That's 752 in your Bibles. Chapter 4, verse 6. Look what God says about Israel. I believe it would be true about the church today if we were honest. God says this about whose people? My people. He didn't talk about those people. He's talking about His chosen remnant. His people. My people. Are destroyed from what? A lack of knowledge. Because they have rejected that knowledge. You see, church, the first, maybe even the foundation, if it's not a pillar, the foundation of this church and every church must be the foundation of God's holy word. We must be a learning community. Not just here on a Sunday morning for 45 minutes, not just here on a Sunday morning in the Sunday school hour, But you, in and of yourselves, with your family, must leave here and you must soak yourself and learn God's Word. Because if not, we will be destroyed for a lack of knowledge of God's Word. Do we know the truth of God? What does God's Word say about the truth? The truth will what? Set you free. Are you living free lives? Are you living free from anxiety? Are you living free from depression? Are you living free from the list? goes on and on and on. If you do not live free lives, I would simply submit to you this morning that you do not hold the truth of God in your heart. You do not have the knowledge of God. Now, I'm not saying if you're struggling with depression, you don't know God's Word. I I know there's chemical imbalances. I get that piece of it. I'm not talking uh, about the mental aspect of depression. What I'm talking about is that soul within you that's always moping around. Because God's Word also says this, that there ought to be joy in us as believers. Do we know the truth of God? Do we know God's truth, His Word? That's the first thing that every church must hold to, be a learning community. The second is this, not only that, turn back with me to Acts chapter 4, or 2. Verse 43. We must be a loving community. It says they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship. Are we a loving community? That word fellowship in the Greek is koinonia. That that word means to come together. But that word doesn't just simply mean come together. It means that we are partakers of things and we are sharers in things. You see, are we a loving community that partakes in things? Circle that one little word right before the word fellowship. The fellowship. That means there is the fellowship. What are we fellowshipping in? Because people all the time, all over the world, do fellowship. 
Like, just wait. In a couple weekends, there's going to be 108,000 people that are going to come together to fellowship with a bunch of 18 to 22 year old boys running up and down with a football. That's fellowship. They go crazy. And I'll be on my couch watching it. Go Longhorns. So I know how to fellowship. But there's that one little word in the text. The fellowship. The question is, what are we fellowshipping around? Because we all know how to fellowship. But the fellowship. Are we partaking in the divine truth of who Jesus is? Our fellowship must be centered around Him and Him alone. Not how good the biscuits are. Not how good the balls are. Vandy is. The Titans are. But are we fellowshipping, partaking and sharing the divine nature of who Jesus is? Do we talk about the power of Christ Jesus? Do we fellowship around the resurrection? When is the last time that you sat down over coffee and simply talked about the goodness of God through His resurrection? The goodness of God that He sent His only begotten Son that whoever believe in Him shall not perish but have everlasting life. When's the last time we fellowshiped about that? When's the last time we talked and fellowshiped about God's love for us? You see, when we begin to talk and fellowship about God's love, it will motivate us to love other people. When we really begin to understand the truth that God's Word says that He loved us first, then that love will then pour out of us to other people. Here's what else is very true about true Christian fellowship. It's super costly. Look at it in the text. They fellowship. And then it says this, all the believers were together and they had all things in common. What are the things they had in common? The Gospel first and foremost. But then it says this, they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as they needed. Do you think that cost those people something that sold their possessions? How much more ought it cost us in loving people? Not just monetarily. Time, energy, effort. A true fellowship will cost us something. You see, in our society, the the day that we live in, we're at such a pass-face society. Like, man, coffee for five minutes is great, but coffee for an hour and five minutes, I don't know about all that now. But is it going to cost me my time to be in unity with someone else? Or are you just going to speed rush right through every conversation, every moment that we have with one another? It's going to cost us something, but here's what we'll also know. When our fellowship is centered around the Gospel, when it's centered around Christ, Turn with me to 1 John. Page 11. uh, Page 1021 in your few Bibles.
I want to read to you what the Apostle John says about fellowship in verse 3. That's what we have seen and heard. We proclaim also to you. So that why? You too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and His Son, Jesus Christ. So the Apostle, when he starts writing his book, he wants to invite people into a loving community. He wants to invite people into fellowship. But this is what he also says. If we're in a loving fellowship, this is what it must look like. Let's turn over one page to chapter 4. We must first remember the love that was given to us is what he says. But then it says this in verse 7. Beloved, let us love one another. For love comes from where? God. Whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God. That ought to terrify us. He's saying if you have fellowship with God, then you know God, therefore you're going to have love, therefore now go love other people. But if you don't love other people and you don't love this community of believers, He says, then you don't have love. If you don't have love, you don't have God, which means you're not saved. So a loving community must be a safe community. But it's centered around not my salvation and what I did, but what Christ has did for me and the invitation that comes with that. He goes on and says it this way. In this, the love of God has been manifested among us, the church, that God sent His only Son into the world so that we might live through Him. In this love, not that we love God, but that He loved us, He sent His Son to be a propitiation for our sin. Beloved, if God so loved us, we ought to what? Love one another. And He just told us how to love one another. Sacrificially. A loving community must be a sacrificial community. It says this in John 10, and John 13.35. By the way that you love, one another. The world will know you're my disciple. The way the world knows that we belong to Christ is how we love one another in the body of Christ. Is that true for us? Chapter. So He tells us to be a learning community. He tells us to be a loving community. And now He tells us this. To be a worshiping community. Every church that holds the truth of the Gospel must worship. Here's what's true about all of us. All of us are worshipers. We will worship something. But what and how and who do we worship is the question. It says this. The breaking of the bread and the prayers. He goes on to say it this way. Praising God. He tells us in this one little passage to break bread to pray, and to praise. What does the word break bread mean in that passage? This is what I believe to be true about this passage. It refers to the Lord's Supper. That He's saying that they came together, and as often as they came together, they did the Lord's Supper together. Because we see just in a few more verses that they came in their houses and broke bread. In my opinion, that's a meal together. My first opinion is that this first breaking of bread is the Lord's Supper. 
How, how do we know that? Because of where it's sandwiched in the text. How it's sandwiched in the text. He just told them to do these things about who Jesus is. Now He tells them to break bread and then He tells them to pray. So we know it's a spiritual thing. Now the way y'all cook, it's a spiritual thing when I eat your food. But that's not the spiritual thing I'm talking about. I'm talking about we come together as a church to take the Lord's Supper together. I believe we ought to do it as often as possible. And here's why I believe we ought to do it as often as possible. Here's why I believe that Acts 2, 42 through 47 says to do the Lord's Supper as often as possible. Because this is what the Lord's Supper does for us. The Lord's Supper always reminds us of two things. Who Jesus is and what He did. You see, when He says to the disciples at the Lord's Supper, the very first Lord's Supper, He breaks the bread and reminds them of the covenant. This is My body broken for you. This is My blood spilled out for you. So every time that we come to the Lord's Supper, we're being reminded of what Christ did for us. And in my opinion, we can't be reminded of that enough. Like that ought to be a humbling a moment for all of us that claim to be Christ Jesus when we come to the Lord's Supper to be reminded Christ died for me, a sinner. So that's the first thing that the Lord's Supper does. Here's what the second thing the Lord's Supper does. It's what Paul says for us to do in Corinthians. Every time we come to the Lord's Supper, we are to examine ourselves. So not only do I know who the Lord is, But in coming to the Lord's Supper, now I know who I am. And if I'm honest, the Lord's Supper is going to push out sin in my life. Because Paul says, don't take the Lord's Supper in an unworthy manner. So it forces me to make confession. Confession of who He is and a confession of who and what I've done. The Lord's Supper is a reminder. But it ought to be in an act of worship. I don't come to the Lord's Supper Because, man, I I dread it. I come praising God for what He's done for me. One time, I don't know if I'll ever do it here, I I want to break out in shouts of praise when we come to the Lord's Supper. So often we come to the Lord's Supper and it's so solemn. Man, what if we rejoiced in what that supper represents? A broken body, blood spilled on our outer half, to remind us of the promise that God made for us that He would never send His wrath upon us ever again. That is something to be celebrated, church. So that's the first one. The second one is this. They were committed to the prayers. We do a lot of things in churches. When's the last time that we came just for a prayer service? That's all we did. We'll we'll come, and I'm not dogging anything that we do here, because I love everything we do here. But when's the last time this church came before this altar and all we did was simply pray? Because prayer always pushes us on our face before God and shows us our dependence on Him rather than ourselves. So the apostles are saying to the church, you must be devoted to the Lord's Supper, but you must be devoted to prayer. Do we worship God that way? Through prayer. And Jared does a great job leading songs. I hope I do a decent job teaching. But man, I want to be a church known 
for the power of prayer. Prayer is our dependence and begging God to do something for us that we cannot do on our own. It's pleading with God. Like when you see those prayer requests in the bulletin, are you going home pleading for God on behalf of those people? Standing before God and begging God to do something for every individual on that piece of paper. And not only that, believing that He'll do something with what you're praying. It also says this. Catch the word again. The prayers. There's a way that they prayed to God. A systematic way. There's a great book called The Common Book of Prayer. If you're struggling with your prayer life, I plead with you, go grab that book. It's got hundreds of ways to pray. If you're like, man, I don't know, I start praying. If you're like me, I start praying and all of a sudden I become like a, a, a hunting dog. Squirrel? Rabbit? Squirrel? Am I the only one? Like, I, I need God to keep my mind focused on what I'm praying about. That book, The Common Book of Prayer, has helped me tremendously in my prayer life. Let's be a worshiping community. And last, within a worshiping community, we must praise God. Through all of our lives, not just singing, are we a worshiping community? And the last is this. We must be a reaching community. The Verse 46. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking breads in their homes, they received the bread with gladness and generous heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Think about this for a moment. Prior to this being written, there was only 120 believers. You can read on in the passage that after that moment, after the day of Pentecost, after Peter stands up and boldly proclaims who Christ is, 3,000 people came to know Christ. Now, I'm not a mathematician, but that's exponential growth. You go from 120 to 3,120 Day by day. There's a few things I want to talk about being in a reaching community. I want to first talk about where does it start? How do we be a reaching community? Look where it says in verse 47, and the Lord attitude. So we can do all the programs we want. We can do all the outreach we want. I mean, heck, if I put on a clown suit, I'm sure I'd reach somebody. But that's not what I want to do. I don't want to do all these events and it all be about what we're doing. Because if it's all about what we're doing, that moment will be a flash in the pan because there's another guy that's going to do it better. But I want the Lord to add to our number. It starts with Him and Him alone. But I believe it starts with what I just said a few moments ago. It starts with us pleading with God to reach people. He must add to our number. 
It starts with Him. It doesn't start with me. It doesn't start with you. Like if you think, man, evangelism, that, that's such a huge weight on my shoulders. Evangelism is not a weight on our shoulders at all. It's all dependent on God. He just wants to use us as a conduit to reach His people. But it's up to Him. It's not up to me. That takes the pressure off for me when it comes to evangelism, to be a reaching church. Like, I don't feel the pressure to have to reach this community. The, the pressure I feel is being submitted to the Lord through prayer that He'll reach this community through us. So it starts with Him and Him alone. Not only that, I believe it has to be with these things. Gladness and generous hearts. I believe it's going to happen through God and Him alone. But it's going to take gladness from us with generous hearts. Are we? Do we live with gladness? Do we live with the understanding of all that God has done for us? That's what it talks about. Day by day, they attended the church together, breaking bread in their homes, receiving their food with gladness and generous hearts, praising God and having what? Favor with all people. Their favor came out of how they were living out the gospel-centered life to other people. Like when the people were coming to the temple, they saw this crazy group of people over on the corner. Like, man, there's something different about them. That's what was so attractive was their joy and their selling and their giving to one another. That's what attractive people. Do we live out that way? God has called us as a church to be a reaching church. Now I'll say this in closing. I think this is where so many churches have gotten it wrong. I cannot stand the phrase, a seeker-friendly church. That is an oxymoron to me. The church, listen to me closely, is not primarily for unbelievers. Like if everything we do is directed to unbelievers, I would say we're off. The church was meant as an institution by God for believers to be sent out of this place to reach unbelievers. The moment we become attractive to the world is the moment that we lose the power of the gospel. Because the power of the gospel is simply this. It's offensive to people. Turn with me to 1 Corinthians. Chapter 1, verse 18, with this all closed. The power of the gospel, the truth of the gospel, is offensive to unbelief. They cannot make sense of it. So the moment an unbeliever begins to make sense of what we're doing, and it's no longer offensive, we're in trouble. Here's what it says. The word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. Like what we say and what we do in this place and we talk about the Gospel and we talk about the good news and we talk about sanctification and we talk about justification. We talk about the goodness of God. That is folly to those who are perishing. That makes no sense to them. But to us, the church, who are being saved, it is what? The power of God. Verse 20. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the 
debater of this age, has God not made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom. It pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who what? Believe. So yes, I want to be a reaching community. But listen to me loud and clear. Not at the expense of being a gospel-centered learning community. Like everything that we do, yes, we want unbelievers to come to know Christ. But not at the expense of teaching God's Word. I know how to grow a church with numbers. Just start talking about the war, what the world says is okay. Again, this might be offensive, but that's okay. In Nashville, there's a church, a prominent church, downtown Nashville. And it's got this large rainbow flag in the front. And it says, all welcome, none are judged. That's sad to me. Here's the truth. Yes, all are welcome here. But unbelievers will be judged for the way they live their life. So I know how to grow a church. But not at the expense of God's Word. I will always hold true in this pulpit to this Word. And that may be offensive. But here's what's true. As a community... As God's shepherd, I will give an account. It says in Ezekiel this, if I do not herald this word to you with all that I have and all that to be true, your blood will be on my hands and I will have to give an account for every single one of you who perishes because I did not tell you the truth. I will never waver from this as long as I'm your pastor because I want to be a community that learns God's word. I want to be a community that loves one another and loves the world. I want to be a community that worships a holy God and I want to be a community that reaches lost people around the world with the Gospel. And I pray that you would join me in that endeavor. And not just me, but the God of the Bible who calls us to that endeavor. Let us pray.